Wales Breakfast Metal episode 84. This is the second part on the kind of live albums and live DVDs I've been doing where the, the idea was to cover sort of live releases because it's something, you know, we're all kind of missing gigs and that at the moment. So I've been going through a few of my favourites and got a few listener submissions and reviews as well to help me cover this like, impossibly vast topic. There is, you know, most bands of a given size have put out at least one live release. So throwing in a few of my favourites. I'm going to try and get a reasonable split of genres. I know last episode I focused very heavily on... Um, on death metal so we're going to try and few, throw a few different things in there and the listener submissions for, for this particular episode will really vary things up so the first album i want to cover is one that is purely an audio one i don't believe there's like a visual component to it this is ahab's live prey from t- released in 2020 i believe recorded um at a festival in germany back in 2017 the album is basically a recording of the whole of their debut call of the wretched sea some slight changes made there but more or less it's the band performing that album in full so for those of you who aren't familiar with ahab they are for my money one of the best bands in the the funeral doom subgenre they their debut call of the wretched sea is a monumentally heavy record and realistically has to go down as one of the all-time great like debut metal albums and without question the best debut album i can think of put out by a funeral doom band like other other kind of like contemporaries like esoteric or evoken took a few releases to get into like really find how to get to the meat of their sound whereas ahab just put out this near perfectly formed album um and then have just evolved and changed since there um the 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 album is incredible. It is one of those like near ten out of ten releases. Uh, you know, it it's something that was amazing. It was also one of the first um, that and the follow up were like probably the two first funeral doom albums I ever got. And what's kind of interesting about them is I never got my head around that joke of um, doom drummers being boring and or waiting forever between each note because. Cornelius uh, Althammer's performance on this is so immensely complex and uh, kind of all over the place throughout. Like he is the absolute star of the show, whereas like a lot of the guitar parts are far more simple. The drumming is just incredible. Um, and for those of you who are f- familiar with Ahab's later material, this album also features near enough none of. Um, of vocalist Daniel Drost's clean vocals. It's entirely this extremely low-registered scream. Um, but that none of that detracts. It's just it's just a different style from their, their later material and, and easily the heaviest thing they ever put out. So when in 2017 they went to recapture this as kind of one live event of just over an hour of five massive songs... The performance is kind of close to the the sort of the original album. I don't think there's a hell of a lot of reinvention there. But what's interesting is uh, Daniel Dross's performance. You can see how his voice has evolved in, what, like 10 plus years of, of being an extreme metal vocalist, like sort of fronting a band regularly. Like those, there are small sections of clean vocals in Call of the Wretched Sea, but now he's really mastered his singing like he has. Um, those are kind of 
reimagined to be a bit more melodic and um and bombastic whereas the, on call the retrocy his vocal delivery always felt like him stretching for his absolute lowest note he varies that up a bit more here this isn't quite so extremely guttural throughout although for the average death metal vocalist this is still pretty low the performance is absolutely spot on uh, much like with the studio album the drumming is star of the show but realistically, with a band like this, the main thing is the atmosphere, and they they do just evoke this incredibly bleak, intense kind of overwhelming sound throughout the whole hour of this runtime. That kind of subject matter of Moby Dick, the the original album, is is a concept album about the book where, and then they'd follow up doing concept albums about different kind of relatively related uh, stories. Um, yeah, that concept of Moby Dick is so, so perfect for this kind of sound. Um, very different take on it to, say, Mastodon's Leviathan, who go for a far more varied approach, whereas this is, is just overwhelming and, and incredibly bleak throughout. I remember reading in an interview years ago that like, I think... Uh, the frontman Daniel is quite a, quite a shy person, and actually, kind of oddly enough, for a live album, there is no audience interaction at all. The he doesn't speak outside of his vocals at all between songs. But instead, what they use to play one song into another is the kind of um, like samples, which I don't. I hope I'm not wrong on this. I don't think these samples are on the actual album, but they found sort of slightly different bridging parts. So they're, they're clips from a kind of Moby Dick film of some kind. I have no idea where they're from. Of certain bits of dialogue before going into particularly big moments from the album. Um, the al This hits in exactly the same way as, as the studio album. There's stuff like moments in Old Thunder, which are just utterly incredible and the hunt brings things to a close in such a strong way uh, essentially i probably wouldn't dive into this one if you haven't um haven't heard the original album but then again if you actually even if not like if, if funeral doom is a genre you've never clicked call of the wretched sea if you like death metal at all is well worth a go it might be the one that sort of pushes you over the edge if say say maybe you started out on mirror reaper by Bellwitch and that sort of soured you because you know it may be too slow too too sparse this isn't sparse in that kind of way this is this is big and brutal and complex throughout but it is still slow the the kind of the riffs take a long time to play out, but a lot happens in that space. And as I keep mentioning, the atmosphere is spectacular. Ahab have always been masterful at creating that atmosphere, which I think is the real key thing to Funeral Doom. It's got to be that kind of combination of extremely heavy and extremely kind of mournful um and that, that's, you know, your perfect sound for the genre. I haven't got a lot else to add on this one. It's just great to hear a sort of, you know, 10 out of 10 record recreated by a band. Sort of, you know, a decade on from that point in time. And performed to just such a intense degree. Now I just really hope I can get to see Ahab live at some stage.
so I'll pass you over to the first of uh, this episode's guest reviews. This is um, from my, my bandmate and um, guy who helped out on um, our Masson episode, Finn, um, talking about a band that if you listen to that episode closely, you'd be unsurprised to hear him bring up here. Hi there, this is resident Josh Homme fanatic Finn, here to talk to you about Queens of the Stone Age's 2005 live album, Over the Years and Through the Woods. So this album came out after 2004's Lullabies to Paralyze, uh, and one thing worth noting is that all four of the albums were really well represented here. Basically, it's a really good mix of uh, the obvious songs and the not-so-obvious ones. So at this point in time, No One Knows is obviously a very famous, you know, mainstream rock song. So that one's here, along with other obvious tracks such as uh, The Lost Up, Keeping a Secret from Rated R, Little Sister from Lullabies to Paralyze, uh, Regular John from the first album, although that's not quite as well-known as uh, the other songs or albums. Uh, but you also have uh, a couple of choices such as I Think I Lost My Headache from Rated R. So to anyone who's heard the album version, uh, and Phil has told me this before, that he fucking hates the way this song ends. Uh, but they kind of play this riff in 15-4 and over and over again, and eventually all the music is transcribed onto a horn section and some very annoying trumpets that goes on for about three or four minutes. Uh, it's very arduous and a very sort of horrible way to end an album, uh, but what they do in the live setting is that they actually just take that riff, keep speeding up until eventually they break it into a 4-4 thrash riff, which is a really fucking high energy bit of the set, and I can only imagine how fun that must have been down the front. And they also have the song The Fun Machine Took a Shit and Died, which uh, obviously is a great title, uh, and at the time it was actually an unreleased song. It was a B-side that had been kind of been floating around since the Lullabies era. Uh, so I think they originally recorded it for Lullabies, lost the tape, so it wasn't included on the album. Uh, they also then re-recorded it for Ira Volgaris, but still didn't officially release it. So, uh, so far, uh, the only official release of the song is actually through this live album. Uh, and the arrangement that they use for this live version is actually different to the arrangement they end up using on the recorded version anyway. So, you know, at this point in time, it's sort of like it was a work in progress. It was really cool that they felt confident enough to give it a, you know, a debut on a live album. Uh, this live album also includes two songs from the Desert Sessions. So for anyone who's not too familiar with Queens of Sony or Josh Homme in general, uh, the Desert Sessions is one of Josh Homme's, I guess you'd call it a side project. Uh, he basically has a revolving door of musicians. He takes them all to a shack in the desert. They take a lot of drugs over the course of a few weeks and semi-improvise some music. So every Queens of the Stone Age album up to, but not including like Clockwork, always had a couple of songs from the Desert Sessions included. So, you know, in a sense, Josh was using the Desert Sessions as a bit of a sort of breeding ground for future Queens of the Stone Age material. So songs such as You Think I Ain't Worth a Dollar But I Feel Like a Millionaire or Hanging Tree from Songs to the Death or Monsters in the Parasol from Rated R or Avon from the self-titled album, which also is included on this live album with a very wicked drum solo included, were all originally Desert session songs so it's no surprise that a few of them turn up here so make it with you or as it was known at the time i want to make it with you was originally on desert sessions 9 and 10 but it makes its way on here and obviously then quite famously went on to be a queen's of stone age original recorded on the album after this era vulgaris you know immediately you can hear the uh, the differences in this song compared to the one that was on the desert sessions it's uh, being less of a sleazy song it's kind of more of a romantic one and they got an extended solo and it basically much more resembles the eventual queen's of the stone age version of the desert sessions one so it's actually kind of really cool as a snapshot to see the the moment in time when it sort of was crossing from being one uh, project song to another. And then very interestingly, they also play Covered in Punk's Bud, which is another song from Desert Sessions 9 and 10. It's just an incredibly short, incredibly fast, incredibly heavy uh, punk instrumental. So this one has a, an absolutely pounding uh, drum rhythm, which uh, in the middle of the song, all the other instruments drop out and you just hear the drums. It really carries well into a live show. Uh, but interestingly, this, this to date has still not been recorded as a Queen's of the Soda Age song, so it's... I mean, I guess it's kind of cheeky, the guys, to just assume that the people in the crowd would have been familiar with Josh's larger body of work. But it works. I mean, it, as a live track, it really, really fits into the flow of the album nicely. So this release was actually a combination of two different live shows, one recorded at the Brixton Academy and another at the Coco, both in London. Uh, before the podcast, I had actually assumed that the CD was just uh, one of the shows recorded in its entirety, and the DVD was a combination of both shows. But it turns out both of them were actually just um, a mix from both shows put together with the tracks all aired out of order. 
So the DVD obviously has a really, really good uh, visual aspect, uh, visual... So the DVD also has very good visual production where, you know, they mix the audio from one show, but they also somehow mix in the visuals from two different shows. Uh, and you can tell because I think the band members all very obviously wore uh, different clothing, so they weren't sort of trying to hide it or anything. But they mix it really well. and They got lots of kind of weird um, uh, sort of effects they put over the top. And then in between the songs also, they've got, they include some sort of interview footage. Uh, and then, you know, some weird skits. I mean, one, for example, is where someone wearing a wolf mask on the floor and then someone walks past and sort of mentions that they preferred Queens of Stone Age with Nick being in the band, which I guess was uh, their way of acknowledging that a lot of people were upset that he'd left. But, you know, just going on the record, Nick Oliveri is an abuser and a piece of shit. So the band haven't lost anything in his absence. But yeah, when it comes to the actual playing of the songs, uh, what they do with, I'd say, the, the majority of them uh, is they, they take what were the sort of standard album versions. They tend to just add a lot more sections than were originally included. So sometimes they'll just do something like uh, they do in Monsters of the Parasol, where they uh, sort of sing a different vocal melody over the top, which gives it a very different kind of vibe. Uh, or in the case of Regular John, they kind of add a few sections where they just uh, play riffs for a bit longer to kind of really get a sense of them. Uh, but then a couple of songs, like in uh, in No One Knows, very notably, because obviously that song has a very famous structure. Halfway through the second verse, uh, they just completely go off, end up playing a different song entirely. Uh, one of the riffs from which ended up being used in Them Crooked Vultures, uh, in No One Loves Me and Neither Do I. Uh, and then eventually the whole jam kind of fades away. Uh, and then it's just Josh just sings the second verse just entirely on his own. Uh, and then the instruments all come back in for the second chorus. It really fucking hits really hard. And then also my personal favourite song of all time is the live version of uh, You Can't Quit Me Baby included on this. Because the original album version is I think about five or six minutes. Uh, but the version they have here is ten whole minutes because every section they just add in new uh, new sort of bits and, and layers and riffs over the top. And then the last four minutes are just this incredible fucking chaotic uh, jam they have at the end where the bass is the only thing anchoring everything down playing the same riff on a loop and honestly it's just really phenomenal and honestly I think that's representative of this album as a whole it feels like every song that they chose for this album they chose specifically because they thought we're recording this you know for our first live album and well today only live album actually uh, you know, let, let's pick songs that we know we can do something different with. So the, the versions they're hearing aren't just necessarily the versions that they've heard on the album. They, you know, like uh, like a new take on stuff that the fans have heard before. I'd also kind of like to take this opportunity to, uh, you know, raise my opinion that I think Joey Castillo is the best drummer the Queens of Stone Age ever had. I mean, the poor guy was sandwiched right in between Dave Grohl, who, I mean, that's, you know, Dave fucking Grohl. Uh, and then he was replaced by John Theodore from the Mars Volta, who is obviously a fucking octopus madman of a drummer. Uh, but I think in terms of the what I like from Queens of the Stone Age best, I think Joey was actually their best fit. Uh, so he played on Lullabies to Paralyzed, uh, obviously this live release, uh, Era Vulgaris, and then he recorded drums on a few songs for like Clockwork, but was kind of let go a bit into the recording of that album. Uh, but yeah, I just think he's, he's got such a fucking heavy-handed, aggressive style. Uh, I think he brought like a really kind of dirty punk edge to the songs, which I, you know, I mean, I... I I think John Theodore is a fantastic drummer. I've really enjoyed the, the live shows of his that I've both seen and, you know, watched on YouTube and such. Uh, but I, I, I think Joey just had some some kind of energy uh, with his drums that I think fit Queen's of Energy's music really well. And I think they haven't really captured it since. And I, I guess I kind of blame that for why uh, I don't really like their new album, Villains, so much. And makes me a bit cautious about what they're going to do in the future. But we'll see. Another thing that I really appreciate about this live album is the fact that they uh, they leave the mistakes in. So, uh, you know, in contrast to bands such as Megadeth, who, I mean, obviously Dave Mustaine famously can't sing for shit. 
Uh, and if you've actually seen some of their live shows versus the recorded versions of those same shows, they do a lot of touch-ups afterwards before they sort of officially release stuff. Uh, but Queen's Stone Age have very evidently not done that here, and I really appreciate that. So, for example, in the second chorus of Regular John, uh, Josh totally sort of fucks up trying to sing the vocals and has to just sort of throw it away. And also in the intro of I Think I Lost My Headache, uh, obviously the, the drum intro for that is just a bass and a snare, which both hit on very important parts. And there's a bit where Joey very obviously misses a kick part. but And, and that would have been really easy to just dub in in post, but they didn't. And I I really appreciate that it's kind of I just like that kind of honest reflection of what actually happened at the live show mistakes and all so yeah overall I'd say this is an absolutely uh, fantastic live album it's a really good reflection of uh, who the band were in that period uh, and of the albums that they released uh, up until that point uh, the only thing that I would have left off uh, from both the CD and the DVD uh, is there's a bit uh, which like I said I mean they've transcribed this uh, audio from two different shows this would have been very easy to cut around uh, someone in the audience throws something at Josh uh, and then he sort of, you know, vaguely sort of threatens him a bit and calls him out in front of everyone uh, and kind of uses vaguely homophobic slurs. And I just, you know, I mean, I like to think he's probably moved past that a bit these days, but it's, I don't know, I, if it was me, I would have just left that out. I mean, I, I kind of commend them for, you know, once again going, look, Josh can be a bit of an arsehole. There's no point in hiding that from the live album. But I, I, I don't think it's impressive. I just think it kind of sullies what is an otherwise fantastic listen. But otherwise, it is a fantastic listen. It's, uh, you know, I think they released this at exactly the right point in their career because uh, they hadn't quite got to the really weird bits of Irobogaris yet. So they just had the first four albums with the slightly more traditional songs. Uh, I think if they released another live album today, it wouldn't be anywhere near as good as this. Because I think the, I mean, I love Lark Clockwork and like I said, I don't really like villains. But I don't think either of the, the songs on those albums and probably what they'll end up doing in the future lend themselves to the same kind of mad extension and, and crazy rewriting that they managed to do for the songs that they played on this one so yeah I mean obviously if they ever did a, another live album I'd, I'd be all for it but I do think they'll ever capture what they really managed to do with this one so overall I, you know yeah brilliant if you're a fan of the band you should absolutely check this out if you haven't already if you're not a fan of the band I'd probably recommend listening to the albums first because I think listening to these songs knowing the original album tracks is what really makes them so rewarding hearing what they've done different but uh, yeah, in summary, it, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, check it out if you're a fan of the band. And uh, thank you, Phil, for having me on again. Queens of the Stone Age Reviews with Finn I, This is how called I think I lost my fucking headache.
Thanks so much for that review, Finn. And going the extra mile and adding his own jingle. Incredible work. That, that was brilliant. I think it's interesting, this being like the first like properly like non-metal um, album we've covered in this, brings up a lot of interesting stuff. The Those ideas of leaving mistakes and flaws in there is quite interesting. I think there's one coming up which will very much have that that in it but a lot of the ones we covered i i couldn't tell you how correct they are so say so start this episode that ahab one sounds spectacular and it does sound quite raw and real but i i, I could be convinced there was overdubs in there i really don't know and there's no there's no the egregious failure but then again is that just ahab not um you know being that tight on those songs that they're not messing them up but there is sort of something interesting there the other thing that's kind of interesting with the queens of stone age one and i don't know how much this is to do with them being a bigger band but it's seeing stuff where they really reimagine and mess with songs and i think this might just be a fundamental facet of metal of it's so often so complex and technical there isn't space for those kind of like bluesy jammy sections like a lot of a lot of bands like Queens or, or like a lot of 70s stuff like we're, we're really influenced by sort of does like that kind of element of experimentation you get with like say say you look at um, an album like Deep Purple's uh, Live in Japan where the version of Child in Time is just a different song to the to the original studio version it's so completely like there's like five minutes of completely massive derivation from the original that kind of thing seems to have gone out of metal those kind of guitarists who would do their solos differently every single time and i think like that queen's album really does bring back a bit of that with these these strange jams and also that really interesting thing of trying out material live before it's ready for the studio album i can't think of many bands i've seen who have um shared a song in an incomplete format of like a metal gig going like oh this is a track we're working on rather than this is a track that's going to be on the album we recorded a month ago and it's going to come out in in the next month that happens a lot but yeah material in progress is is another thing that's um just not so often the case in metal and i'm not saying any of this stuff is a bad thing that it's it's lacking it's just it is interesting that they're like metal seems to be in that kind of vein where the live performance is pretty much and as close to possible uh recreation of the studio minus maybe any additional guitar or keyboard parts they like, often overlaid and and a lot of bands just bring those with them and play them over the over the pa to to get that sound as close as possible and again there's just very different approaches nothing necessarily wrong with that next up is an incredibly slick recording so directly kind of you know, in the face of uh, Finn's review there of Queens of Stone Age, this is Haken with their, I think, first live album, L-1VE, which was um, released back in 2018, although I think the, the sort of the music recorded in it is, is significantly older than that point. So you've probably heard me talk about Haken on the podcast a few times before. I got big into them when their first demo came out, uh, Enter the Fifth Dimension, back in 2008. And that was just at that point where I'd kind of sort of soured on Dream Theater. I'd gone for that young phase of having a lot of time for Dream Theater because I felt they were, you know, such impressive musicians. But then I started to sort of sour on them because, you know, I felt their songwriting was quite self-indulgent. And I kind of went off the genre of progressive metal for for a year or so because 
I just heard too many bands that were that kind of clone of the Dream Theater sound. And when I heard Enter the Fifth Dimension, I was like, oh, wow, there's actually something in this. There, is, there, there still is life in progressive metal because I felt Haken were were forging really new ground in that genre, despite obviously clearly having an influence from the Dream Theater and likes of that. Like, they were just a band that had kind of found a way to make their sound sound a bit more fresh and more modern. In recent years, with their latest two albums, Vector and Virus, they've, and even Affinity to a lesser extent, they have started kind of moving down more of a path towards uh, Gent. But... Um, this this live album is mainly focused on the first four records, so everything from Aquarius up to Infinity, and it, it's just it's one of those ones. I think more so than anything else, this was like a fantastic product for a super fan. The so if you get the DVD version, it is a I think yeah two CD two DVD set where you get the whole um, first two hour set on CD. Uh, that that two hour set was uh, recorded live in Amsterdam, I believe, in twenty seventeen, um, and then a second DVD of a an hour long set recorded live at Prog Power in the USA, um, and then a series of, of additional like um, official video clips, which you know, could care, couldn't care that much about that side of it. And then you've got two discs, which is the entire you know entire first DVD on CD as well. So you've got the audio format. This is one I definitely say. Get it in the DVD form. It's it, you want to watch a band like Haken play because because they can shred. They they are incredible musicians. Like they never seemingly even the most like sort of melodic catchy part of their music. They are always doing something fucking incredible. I think what like what really sold me watching this DVD because I've seen them live many times over the years and their music is so immensely complex. They've always been a great live band but there's been bits where you're like oh there was there were sort of flaws in that i remember seeing them um with leprous in support so it would have been around about a year after leprous released cole um and it was just as um a new bass player uh, uh connor green had joined haken so leprous were performing a load of their early material just before them and their set was precision it was utterly perfect like Vocals and everything were just exactly as they should be. Whereas Haken um, performed afterwards, and there there was things that weren't quite right. Moments of backing vocals that were a bit out of tune. Things that were ever so slightly sloppy. And this is like you know comparing like a perfect performance to an extremely good one. But it wasn't quite. There. It was that thing of like it wasn't quite there. This a few years later, it totally is that. Like, is the same as I got with Leprous where. This is just perfect. There is absolutely nothing wrong with this. Now, I know things can be can certainly be faked and overdubbed and you know sort of replaced on live albums and live recordings, but the the footage is so clear and crisp. I can't believe there was any like extreme fuck ups. These these things do sound real. And actually, I, I say perfect. It's perfect in all the ways that matter. There are slight moments where you know they've kept in things that did technically go wrong. Um, in the final track of the of the, the main um, Amsterdam set, Visions, there is a bend that the guitarist does that definitely doesn't hit the note he initially like he intended. The one that like 
was there in the the studio album and there's bits of the 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 kind of backing vocals on that track that go a bit south and you know fair play to them they're in, they're two hours into a set uh no problem with that slight like it doesn't it doesn't detract from anything but what's really interesting is that kind of um yeah it, it, it being near perfection up to that point so i'm I'm assuming they didn't edit back in afterwards if they let those slight issues appear in in the final bit of the set. Um, for me as well, like, it's what's great about having the two different sets is we get such a good um, kind of cross section of their career. There are tracks off every every one of their four studio albums, and even um, on the uh, I believe it's only in the the prog power set yeah we get a track from um crystallized off their restoration ep which is an ep where they sort of reimagine stuff from their beyond the fifth dimension demo so like there, there's this amazing split of their career it has pretty much everything i'd want in there there's loads of great cuts from their incredible the mountain album we open with some of the highlights of um of the Affinity album, and then we get the amazing 15-minute epic of The Architect, um, where Ross Jennings, the vocalist, gets to show off uh, a bit of his harsh voice as well. Like, he has a really solid scream vocal that every time I've seen him live, he'll say for one bit of the set. I think there he's uh, talking of Leprous covering uh, Ines Folberg's screams in, in the Song on the Studio album. But what amazes me about this is not only the the musicianship is absolutely fantastic, like Connor Green's bass playing was obviously something that struck me as someone who's always obsessed with bass, but I think most people coming away from Haken are always amazed by Ray Hearn's drum performance. The guy is an absolute powerhouse and what keeps this band locked down and so impossibly tight. The guitar and keyboard work is so immensely flashy, but wonderfully melodic. And honestly, for this va this like kind of uh, genre, restrained. There isn't a lot of endless solos. The solos are quite short. The songs are long, and there's lots of instrumental passages, but they're not they're not self indulgent. They're they're, they're often very weird and um, out out of the ordinary, but um, but certainly not not always just for show. I, I think. Hagen are a band who definitely prioritise being melodic and and being kind of interesting over any kind of any kind of show of technical ability. And the thing that really got me with this is, I think I think all six members of the band do vocals on this, and they're something they really got into on the Mountain album was uh, they'd done it a bit before, but that album was where it really came off was doing these amazing passages of various different vocal melodies at once where you have three different voices doing something different to each other in places like in the cockroach king with no accompaniment whatsoever i think this also happens in the song crystallized there's you know multiple voices doing stuff i think one point in set we have all all of them doing vocals but all doing different melodies with nothing playing and it's perfect it just sounds utterly amazing there's nothing keeping them in time beyond this it's just an acapella moment and it it sounds amazing like every member of this band is a really decent singer on top of playing incredibly complex stuff like ray the drummer i think is the real the real standout of the the backing vocalist i have no idea how he can add that much melody while keeping a band in time like this it's 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 mind-blowing 
for me as well, this caught Haken at like my absolute favourite moment of their career. As much as Vector and Virus are really good albums, I was never quite as into them as as some of the some of the earlier stuff for me. Like it's the Mountain and their first album, Aquarius, are still absolutely my favourites. What I love about their sets as well is Haken are a band who don't shy away from their long songs. In fact, they like really embrace them. Um, like I aforementioned, we had the architect in in their set, but not only do we have that, we also have the entire twenty minutes of visions, the title track from their second album, performed in full as a closer. And to, to like add on top of this, they didn't play a single song off of um, Aquarius. Instead, what they did is the Aqua Medley, which is twenty two minutes of I believe a seventy minute album, just performing essentially the plot of. Uh, of Aquarius like it's and it is um and it flows so nicely it is an amazing kind of summary of that album condensing down into you know 20 minutes of the best riffs and they 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 flow so well it doesn't feel like a jarring edit or anything like it was yeah absolutely loved that as a as a fan of the album and um yeah that like I couldn't be more happy than to witness that like when you you know hoping a band does some of the old stuff Front run Ross Jennings is an incredibly charismatic frontman at this point in time. I remember sort of seeing them early on and often, you know, you could tell he had a drink or two before he got on stage because he had the nerves. At this point in time, he's effortless in his job. And considering how complex and odd a lot of his vocal melodies are, he still manages to be sort of great fun and entertaining on stage and, you know, really kind of that centre of attention throughout all the parts where he's actually singing. He, he does the... He does do the the thing of stepping to the side when he's when he's not involved in a long instrumental section, but um, yeah, it's it's really great to see how he's sort of grown into being this like truly excellent frontman over the years. Something we I brought up earlier, sort of, uh, well, I think Vin brought up more was that the idea of things being um, a bit different to the the studio stuff. And what's interesting with with Haken, I think the band I really wanted to bring this up around is. They're a progressive band, but their stuff is essentially, it's it's exactly the same as the album. Things are performed as the album live. And it's quite an interesting change because I've got a lot of time for a lot of like late 60s, early 70s progressive rock um, and jazz rock fusion, a lot of those kind of related genres. And it's a real interesting change in modern progressive metal that a lot of the live kind of ideas of that never carried across. So I remember... Um, and I, I think I like it, like, because I remember seeing quite a while back now, though, I saw Return to Forever play um, play live. And one of their best songs, the, the Jewel of the Jester and Tyrant off of Romantic Warrior, it's an amazing, it was the, it was the song I had come to see. Like, I, I, I really like the band, but that was a song I really wanted to see them play. And they interrupt that song four times for each member of the band to have an unaccompanied five minute long solo now as brilliant as stanley clark and el demiola are and they are brilliant it is amazing to watch those musicians play play whatever they do live for like five minutes with no accompaniment both of them sound better when the other one is playing and it just felt like this thing of like this was 20 minutes of a two-hour set that was just a divergence into weird self-indulgence if each of those solo pieces had been like 30 seconds it probably would have been cool but as it stood it felt very much that 
it was just getting in the way of everything and something that was there kind of arbitrarily. And I'm kind of glad to an extent that um, metal has sort of shaken some of that need for like, oh, every set's got to have a, a drum solo and a separate guitar solo. Like sometimes like in Children of Odom's albums we mentioned in the previous uh, episode, they can be quite cool. I know, I know certainly like uh, Arch Enemy had like have quite a fun drum solo, like uh, Daniel regularly breaks out. But again, it's kind of short and it's, it's kind of composed. Whereas these kind of things that feel more improvised, you're often a bit like, I don't understand the purpose in this. And it, it and it's interesting that it's, kind of gone away from modern metal like i think the last musician i think think of seeing doing a really long um unaccompanied solo was zach wild and it was incredibly boring and i swear it went on for like 10 minutes and i don't know who it was for other than zach wild himself and brilliant as that guy is i just he sounds better when his bass player and drummer are playing as well like i'm getting off topic here but i it, i just think it's interesting that that kind of change of like despite the huge influence rock prog rock and jazz has had on on metal some of those elements have never never really filtered down and and maybe we've we've taken more from like sort of punk in that regard of like you, know, you just play the fucking song and make the audience react like don't <laughs> don't piss around with uh self-indulgence in the middle of it but yeah so it's, it's interesting even a band like haken kind of a like you know don't have any moments of a musician showing off despite the fact obviously they could probably do as good a job as you know pretty much anyone else out there they're all kind of top tier musicians but yeah if you've if you never checked it out i i highly recommend um this live album i actually if you look up some of the live tracks from it this could be a good way into the band if you've never seen them particularly um like the the sort of um the Prog Power USA bit has some absolutely amazing stuff in it. Like, uh, I'd say, like, so Paradolia off that is, is a really cool, like, cool point to witness. Also, the thing I've got to mention, because it's it's just interesting, the crossover, having mentioned Dream Theater earlier, at the end of Crystallize, there's a giant sort of gong on stage that Mike Portnoy comes out and, like, hits once and so he can, like, essentially, he's, he's, he's on the uh, on the album as a guest performer doing additional percussion. But it was quite a cool, like, uh, end to the set and uh, it's nice to see bands which, you know, who were really influenced by, well, Haken influenced by Dream Theater, start having that involvement and kind of, I don't know, positive sign-off from their, their kind of musical heroes. <laughs>
about that. I very much plugged in the waffle iron on that last uh, <laughs> that last review. I'm going to hand you over now to Hal for something far more considered and uh, and well structured than that one. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Hal, a longtime fan of Phil's Breakfast Metal and an alumna of Phil's Nepotism Corner with my band The Fascinators. Um, quick plug, check us out at fascinatorsbanduk.bandcamp.com. We've recently put out a new demo single and we've been working on a second EP for quite a while now and also a further Live in Lockdown EP. We can't wait to share more material with the world, pandemic or no pandemic. On to the review. So when Phil put out the request for contributions for this episode, my brain instantly leapt to the DVD Mare's Nest by Cardiacs. Initially, I found myself reflexively tripping over, trying to justify my decidedly metal-adjacent, rather than metal, purely, recommendation. By quirk, however, of cardiacs sharing the same management as Napalm Death, it was recorded in a deconsecrated church on the same day that Napalm Death recorded live corruption in the same venue. So, at least they're quite literally metal-adjacent. Also, years later, Napalm Death covered Cardiacs to go off on things to help raise funds for frontman Tim Smith's medical treatment. I'd say that the fact it sounds convincingly like a Napalm Death original, albeit from a day that they got their drinks spiked, with the only real change from the original being growled vocals, demonstrates Cardiac's ability to get heads banging, as do the pits and pogoing crowd visible throughout Mare's Nest. This set, recorded in 1990, sees Cardiacs at their fullest lineup as a seven-piece, which is to say Tim Smith on guitar and vocals, his brother Jim on bass and his wife Sarah on saxophone, Christian Hayes on guitar, William D. Drake on keys, Dominic Luckman on drums, and Tim Key on percussion and bass synth. And it's really a recording of them giving their uniquely and completely batshit best, making full advantage of having a full lineup to use all the tools and toys available to them. To describe Cardiac's music in a word, the first descriptor, and really the essence of the thing, is to say mania. I once read a description of Genesis's early work as a combination of the whimsical and the macabre, which also fits perfectly for Cardiac's. Their bread and butter is a sort of disorienting mishmash of musical ideas run together into something that falls somewhere between psychedelia, hard rock, hymns, nursery rhymes, and passages evocative of cartoons or a particularly chaotic children's game show like Funhouse. So it's lots of stop-start rhythms and abrupt changes of time signature, aggressive staccato thrashing that'll suddenly give way to cheery pastoralism or sinister industrial dissonance, with no clear indication which one it's going to be. Often all of these elements are delivered with a childlike glee in the space of a single song, as with It's a Lovely Day or The Duck and Roger the Horse. Physically, Mare's Nest captures Cardiacs as a sight to behold. They career and jump around the stage with abandon, attacking their instruments with fervour as fake snowflakes fall and machine smoke rises. They cultivate a deliberate sense of the uncanny valley in their movements and facial expressions, perfectly recreating the human cartoon atmosphere they'd previously used in the music video for Tarred and Feathered. 
The energy they create is infectious. They're clearly having a fantastic time and inviting their audience to get caught up in a feeling. That feeling being of teetering cheerily on the edge of delirium and deciding to roll with it. This feeling also seeps out into the filming and the editing of Mare's Nest, which is not just a lavishly shot film of a gig. The opening minutes of ominous build-up begin with the venue's spire shot in flickery pastels like a Technicolor Hammer horror film, before giving way to grayscale and the blank-faced band members psyching themselves up, chanting, All that glitters is a mare's nest. And from that point, there's a strong impression that the gig is going to turn into a surreal horror film or a pastoral comedy at a moment's notice. Reinforcing this are a series of short skits peppered throughout. In one moment, you might see Sarah in a garden performing impressions of various animals. In another, William speaks about his desire as a child to impregnate a woman being frustrated by his lack of sperm. In yet another, Tim states his intention to make a meat substitute from the potato-like tendrils that will grow from his body after death. Others include friends of the band speaking about the impossibility of liking them as people because they're quite probably secretly dogs. All the band's exasperated manager blasting them and their work as complete nonsense. In interviews, Tim would dispute the frequent suggestion that Cardiacs were in any way a punk band. However, they do have an undeniably punkish, or at least puckish, anarchic energy, and Tim especially so, albeit one more suggestive of Dennis the Menace or Peter Pan than Johnny Rotten. By turns yelling, giggling, sneering, chanting, imploring the audience to kiss each other to show their love, or throwing impromptu fits of psychotic rage, Tim grins and casually bullies his bandmates, especially his long-suffering brother Jim, and makes a standout presence with a unique nasal vocal delivery and on-stage persona. Cards on the table, Mesnes was my first exposure to Cardiacs, and it's the one I keep coming back to. In their long lifespan from 1977 to 2007, they put out a healthy collection of demos, EPs, live and studio albums, all of which have something wonderful to offer, but nothing quite captures their essence, for me, in quite the same way. Due to Tim's illness, the band stopped performing in 2007, and I suspect that one of the reasons that they kept their music off streaming services was that every sale was contributing a little money to help pay for his ongoing care. Since Tim's tragic death last year, their music has become a bit more widely available, and literally whilst I was writing and recording this review, their catalogue became available on Spotify. In this context, I'm struck by the band's legacy, and how the transcendentally climactic rendition of their best-known single, Is This the Life, which ends Mare's Nest in a flurry of animated flowers and soaring guitar solos, leads me to feel like it's a sort of swan song. As I said, Mare's Nest was the first contact I had with the band. It was given to me without any context, and as a result it rather blew me away. If anyone hearing this review isn't familiar with their work, but is now curious, I'd like to suggest a wager. There's a good quality HD upload of Mare's Nest on YouTube at the moment. Give that a watch without any further information to give you a, an idea of what to expect and prepare you.
If it leaves you as astounded and exhilarated as I'm sure it will, then head to Cardiac's Bandcamp and buy a copy of the DVD, and get stuck into the rest of their phenomenal body of work. That's all from me. Bye. so much for that excellent review Hal between him Finn and last week's guests or last episode's guests I should say I'm really starting to doubt my ability to do this um yeah that was amazing and and something I, I probably never would have delved into myself like highly recommend giving that that DVD a watch um it's it is spectacularly weird stuff next up we're gonna go for something far more traditionally kind of extreme metal um this is Rotting Christ with their uh, 2015 release, Lucifer Over Athens. Now, I remember this one was quite interesting because the band made quite a big deal about the fact they were just doing a, a kind of live album and not a live DVD. It wasn't, it was meant to recapture the energy of the old live albums, like the, the classics from from back in the day, you kind of, you your early Slayer stuff or like Metallica, like a lot of those early Thrash bands had the, the legendary live releases. And I think this was trying to do that with the Rotting Christ sound. And it's it's incredible. So Rotting Christ for a band, for whatever reason, I've only ever been able to catch play festival sets. So I've only really seen them doing kind of the 
the sort of abridged hour. And this this really isn't that. This um this two disc release is just shy of uh two and a half hours. It's this massive, massive thing that spans like their full career. So, you know, we've got more uh more recent tracks like um like Noctis Era, but then you've got stuff like Sign of an Evil Existence from the very first album, and you know going back and forth between uh, between a lot of their classic uh, material, um, and just you know highlights from their their incredibly rich and varied career. For those of you who haven't really followed Ross and Christ closely, I would highly advise just diving in anywhere like they they are a band that have just been so consistently good over the years but they keep changing like they they started out like their very earliest material and this isn't really touched on it but their very earliest material was this like really raw rough and ready death grind and then their debut album and the kind of the couples of follow with this very kind of um primal black metal but then at the point we get to a dead poem they switch into this like very goth tinge sound and 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 as time progresses into albums like genesis we get moments of like almost like industrial metal leanings by the time we reach um the sort of their later material uh fagonia and alio um there's there's elements of like death metal in there, elements of black metal, some of that goth and industrial all mashed together with these great kind of like chanting pieces. They get really into these sort of repeating vocal hooks coming from like multiple different voices, um, and really giving things quite a ritualistic vibe. I and I would say all like pretty much all their albums I've heard have been incredibly solid. I don't think I've checked out the full. I don't know what are they up to about about 12 or 13 at this point but yeah this um this live album i think does a really good job of covering most that career and um and like really is engaging on that level of just like i remember when i first put it on because i only came like only got hold of it very recently i was just always excited for what song was coming next because i realized i love so many songs from the band like i was just super excited to, for whatever they were going to drop um What's interesting about it is it's something I touched on in the previous episode is that idea of when bands suggest re-recording albums they're almost universally a um, terrible idea but when bands do this kind of thing where they play all their old material with their latest lineup and their their newest sound um, it can be kind of a like like a really brilliant way of presenting that and something that's far more kind of appealing to um to fans of to fans of, of the band like and it, it doesn't feel like so much of kind of shitting on their legacy or or you know getting rid of great previous work but um well not so much getting rid of but like overwriting it rather than a massive tribute to it and it, this album really does feel like an incredible tribute of modern rossing christ performing um performing their old stuff so for rain christ to me my my abiding memory of them and i think i think there's a reason for this. Like when I first saw them live, um, the thing that really struck me was just how incredibly tight and professional they were as a unit. Play as a four-piece with all the guitarists doing doing backing vocals, or like, um, um, and obviously with um, Sakis Tolis uh, leading the band as you know primary guitarist and primary vocalist, and they were just so precision tight. Uh, while 
still having a great deal of presence despite the amount of vocals you know every free moment getting like circle headbanging in there uh getting massive chants going along with the audience you know they they were they were a very active and engaging band but never at the expense of the songs being absolute precision and i think as i said the reason this struck me so hard was the first time i saw them was probably 2014 something like that a bloodsuck festival and Playing on the main stage was down. Playing on the smaller stage was Rotting Christ. So the two sets clashed and Rotting Christ was a little under-attended at the start because everyone had gone to watch Down. Now Down, um, every time I've seen them, have got absolutely drunk out their minds on stage. And the set's been a fucking disaster. Like, I remember seeing them at Hellfest at about three in the afternoon and they were too pissed to play their own songs. Like, apparently, that I don't know, they, they seem to find that fun and all part of the experience, but... You know, I for me, I, I want it. I'm fine with like a bit of Children of Bodom style drunken uh, silliness on stage, as long as the songs still rock. But when the songs are descending into a mess, then I'm not interested. And it was so so night and day that versus Rotting Christ's absolute unit, who you know have been rehearsing like constantly to be producing this absolute perfect sound and i guess a lot of this is down to the the brother duo of uh uh femis tollis and sakis tollis as uh, femis the drummer uh, sakis like vocalist and i believe main songwriter and the, the two of them are just so in sync but the 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 kind of two guest live musicians of uh van ace and george emmanuel they're they're like backing vocals are such a such a kind of important edge to the sound because both of them have got much deeper voices than Sakis and Sakis has got this kind of very unique as a lot of a lot of black metal vocalists who came up from countries other than Norway around that early time in the scene like Rotting Christ are fairly contemporary with a lot of the Norwegian scene their first album being 1993 have these super unique voices and it, his, is, his is another one where it's just like I can't like he. You could always recognise him. He's got this. He's got a, a degree of melody, and a lot of his own accent is in in his scream. And I, I, I always really enjoyed his voice. But that being played off these two harsher, more like more guttural, almost death metal backers, makes for such a good sound. Obviously, because this was designed to be released as a CD, not a DVD. The recording had to be perfect, and the recording is. It it is such a good version of that guitar tone like the bass sounds massive on this so like, really something that's not so clearly there in a lot of their studio albums it cuts through a lot more and gives a slightly yeah slightly different take in even the material from like alio and the follow-up whose name or even an attempt to pronounce um yeah albums so they, there was this kind of thing of everything has a slightly new imagining just because the, their live sound is is that different to the the albums because i guess it's different musicians playing it and and then everything is also imagined for just the two guitars there is an overdub so set closer noctis era one of their quite famous songs um if you you listen to the studio version of that there's four totally distinct guitar lines going on at once whereas live version there is just two because there's just two guitarists to play them and it's a really interesting take on it but it still still sounds brilliant it still really really works um uh, much like say gorefest in the previous episode all the talking with the audience you know they're playing to the home crowd in, in athens 
all the speaking of the audience isn't in English, but it doesn't matter. It's 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 got Sackis's kind of trademark like massive enthusiasm. He doesn't say a lot between songs, but when he says something, it gets you going. And he's always been really great at that. Every time I've seen them, and yeah, this just has an incredible energy to it. I will say the length of it as just an audio CD does make it quite hard to digest in just one sitting. I think it's yeah, it's about two hours, 15 minutes. Uh, so, it, it, yeah, and and what, 31 tracks? Yeah, so it's quite hard to listen to in one sitting because it is as much as there is that variation, it's the same tones throughout for, for an extremely long double album. But there's no slur on the quality of the music or anything like that. It's just... I think without a visual, I would rarely listen to two hours of the same band in a row. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's a supremely minor criticism. Yeah, I re I really love what um, what Rotting Christ did here. I, I think they've released a, an incredibly strong album, and it really did what it set out to do of recapture that magic of a live album because this sounds different to anything else, like it any other version of these songs, particularly as I say, that stuff from the really early era, these are completely different versions of those, or you know, they sound completely different, and it's, um, yeah, just really interesting to hear, and a, and a really nice capturing of how like, how decent they are as a live unit, I mean, obviously maybe there is a huge amount of overdubs and so on going on in there, but it, it sounds pretty real to me, as far as I can tell and, and yeah, it's really enjoyable. <laughs>
actually recorded this whole episode about three weeks ago and I'm actually recording this now just before for putting it online because a package arrived from Japan this morning that I couldn't help but cover in this. So I finally got myself a copy of Black Earth, 20 Years of Dark Insanity Japan Tour 2016. So if you're not familiar, um, Black Earth is a lot of the early lineup of Arch Enemy reuniting to do a special kind of short tour. I think they did a few dates in Japan and nowhere else in the world back in 2016, playing just the first three albums material. Again, if you're not familiar, first three albums are where they, before Angela Gosso joined the band with their old vocal, vocalist, Johan Lever, fronting them. And the band is like reunited with lead guitarist Chris Amott for this one, as well as obviously Michael Amott, and the rhythm section of Charlie D'Angelo and uh, Daniel Erlinson, who... But, like, all five of those were kind of heavily involved in the early material, although Charlie D'Angelo and Daniel Ernson, like, not on all of it. Um, uh, the first album, um, I think Michael Amott plays all the bass, although Johan is actually credited because initially they're going to be a four-piece and uh, he ended up not being good enough to do bass and vocals at the same time. Um, which, fair enough, the song's quite fast. And Daniel Ernson plays drums on all the albums, Barring Stigmata, which he only plays on The Beast of Man and not the rest of the album. And I've never worked out quite what the story behind that is. But this is like the, this is the classic lineup. This is your Burning Japan live lineup. And what's amazing, hearing the band reunite like this under a new name. So they're called Black Earth. They are now essentially a separate entity, although, you know, playing another band's songs. Um, they sound more incredible than ever. Like, in comparison to uh, Burning Japan Live, which I think is recorded in 1999, it's not a bad live album. It's, you know, I probably wouldn't have covered it in this set. Like, it's it's a fun listen, but this sounds absolutely incredible. Um, Johan Lever sounds better than he ever did. I, I always wrote him off as kind of an average vocalist, almost the bit that let down, like, uh, Early Arch Enemy from being some of the best melodic death metal going um but on this he sounds completely transformed he's got this kind of he's got way more range to his voice his um his growls feel so much more like aggressive his like highs are far more like kind of snarling and like almost you know verging into that sort of slightly black metal territory and he's got a few few slightly lower grunts he throws in there as well for a bit of a bit of variety um and as you can imagine, the band's performance, like these these people are just such seasoned professionals at this point in time, you know, got near 30 years in the business or, or 25 back in uh, 2016. Like these are all sort of complete tour pros. But what's amazing is just the the kind of passion and enthusiasm that's there from both like the crowd and the band doing this kind of total throwback thing. So in recent years of Arch Enemy, the first three albums have been more and more forgotten. So if you look at their first, um, I think, uh, Live Apocalypse. Is it Live Apocalypse? Something like that. Their first DVD, the one that came out before Doomsday Machine, there was like five tracks off the Johan Lever era albums, and it was mostly focused on Wages and Sin and um, uh, Anthems of Rebellion. Then the the DVD is put out two albums later, had like, I think maybe three. I think they played Dark Insanity. And maybe a few others off that really early era. It uh, feels a desolation, obviously. Like, like that outro has always been a thing, and I believe that's still there now. And then if you look at most uh, the most recent live stuff, it barely even covers Wages of Sin, the first um, the first Angela Gosso album. Now, now Lissa's fronting the band, so having something purely focused on this was was amazing. The other side as well is 
Where's Burning Japan Live, I believe, is an 11 track album. This is, what is it? Yeah, 24 songs. They're like an almost two hour long set, uh, just covering basically everything you could want. They, it starts off with the, oh, we'll get into the actual true star of it later, but the, the kind of start of the live set is Black Earth, which they, because they've taken the name of the band from, uh, confusingly, there's the song Black Earth from the album Stigmata, and their first album was called Black Earth. But, you know, it made sense. Like, Black Earth has this kind of, like, epic-sounding intro, this distorted voice over kind of these swelling sort of keyboard noises. Uh, so it made sense as, like, their walkout song to kind of extend that a bit. And then, you know, then like, that's the first track of the set. And then the... So the first disc is ten songs going back and forth between Stigmata material and Burning Bridges, kind of leaning more heavily to Stigmata. I mean, personally, I'd say Stigmata is the best Arch Enemy album, but uh, melodic death metal scholar uh, Stan the Man would disagree with me there. He's always let more towards Black Earth, or at least in recently, as I think he said, said as much. Um, but yeah, I mean, all that early stuff is really cool. Burning Bridges, possibly a touch too melodic. But the little run near the start of this, of the immortal Dead Inside and Pilgrim, the first three tracks of, um, of Burning Bridges, just absolutely incredible. As I say, Johan Lieber's kind of more intense performance, like, just sounds so good. The bass is turned up than what it ever is on any of Arch Enemy studio stuff, and Charlie Andrews is a great player who often plays around with a lot of, like, adding a few sort of interesting effects and stuff. So giving that bit more of like a bass and drum kind of thing in these songs just makes them sound that bit more heavy. The the lead guitaring is obviously fantastic. Well, something uh, Richard from Blood Rust, who did a review on the previous episode, pointed out, and and now I've heard it, I, you know, I can't like, I can't unhear it, is Michael Amott is a little bit sloppy on his solos. Or maybe not even sloppy, he kind of... His solos aren't the same as the studio album, whereas Chris Amor is near perfect to his like studio performances of the solos. And I know that's a minor criticism of, of Michael Amor, but it's just I guess for me because I like Arch Enemy, one of those bands I like got me into extreme metal, so I know these songs so inside out. Just hearing the solos being like, a couple of notes off, sort of, it's suddenly jarring, and yeah, I, I guess. Slightly annoying, but yeah. Then the the album in on the second disc of the this, the album, we move into them playing um, the first album, Black Earth, in full, ending on the the massive fields of desolation. And what's so cool about this is, for those of you who know Black Earth, it's got a load of little interlude tracks like uh, Demonality and Time Capsule. And what's absolutely incredible is the moves between some of these songs into the interlude tracks sound better than they do on the studio album. Cosmic Re Retribution into Demonality has these absolutely perfect, like, switch. It feels so natural to go from that really kind of fast blasting track into that, into the kind of more doomy, atmospheric minute of Demonality. And then, then into Transmigration Recarb just... It just, just sounds perfect. That flow is absolutely seamless. And actually, the stuff flowing into each other really works because as much as Jan Lee of his vocals are fantastic, his interludes on this are just weird. Like he sort of tries to string lyrics of the songs into into interludes and often they don't make any sense and he kind of finishes a bit awkwardly before the song starts. But in his defense, he hasn't been fronting a band this big 
possibly ever. So and I think I can even say this is like their second gig of the tour. This um, this uh, live album slash live DVD. I don't know if I mentioned it. There's there's a, a DVD and a CD portion of it. DVD is it's pretty no frills. The the performance like the capture of the audio is fantastic and the DVD of it looks good. It's you know a couple of camera angle thing, but. It's in a pretty small, dark venue. But, you you know, you get to see what's going on quite well. Interesting as well, I guess this is the other the other difference, is when you're picturing Arch Enemy Live, I've never said anything about the audience, actually, so far in this review. I, you are probably picturing, especially like a live DVD, them in front of at least a thousand people. This room, I'd be surprised it's more than 400 capacity. I mean, it's packed out and the crowd are really into it. But, um, yeah, it's... it's uh, Black Earth definitely don't quite have the the appeal Arch Enemy do, which is a shame because I would I would so love to see this live, and I really hope they they one day do uh, like Black Worm gigs are on again, do a tour of Black Earth or you know something similar, playing this early material. Yeah, the audiences, as I mentioned, are really into it. There's some great moments like uh, in Bury Me an Angel and the big melodic chorus. You can hear hear them humming along. And actually, the, the intro to the, the second half of the set is um, is the kind of melody line from Fields of Desolation put, uh, put over a kind of like a kind of keyboard melody. And the audience are even singing along with that. Fields of Desolation, interestingly, they, they is like the sort of the big closer before the encore. I'd say the the crowd are all singing along the melodic bit. Structurally, it's not the Fields of Desolation from Black Earth. It's the Fields of Desolation, which I believe is on the Japanese bonus tracks version of um, of Burning Bridges, which has a bit more lead guitar at the end before it gets into that fancy harmony solo. So both um, both uh, Michael and Chris are like trading off their own leads, and because that was only a bonus track, they never. I don't think I ever really performed that version of Fields of Desolation live. Um, both of them have kind of gone for unique takes on their leads rather than like totally recapturing the studio one, which in that one case I think quite quite works because you know it's a big big ending to the set, so like oh, they like go for it, show off at this point, and then we get this fantastic encore because I, when I was listening to it earlier, I kind of forgot the track listing. I was because um, I've seen the the DVD portion of it a couple of times, but listening to the CD for the first time, I wasn't looking at the tracks. I was like, this is really weird. We got this far through the set. Like, they've done Fields of Desolation. That's it. It's done. And we haven't had Beast of Man or Bridge of Destiny, which are, you know, probably two of the best Arch Enemy songs ever. But no, there's an encore. There's another another three songs opening with Beast of Man, then getting in the extremely cheesy Silver Wing. I was going to say the most cheesy Arch Enemy song ever, but I guarantee there must be a cheesier one in the Alyssa era. I just can't believe with their, their newer lyrical fodder of like believe in yourself kind of stuff, there isn't one that comes off even more goofy than this one. But it's always been a Japanese favourite, Silver Wing. Like, they, they'd love that track there, so obviously it's going in the encore. And then finishing on the amazing Bristol of Destiny, which first half of it, one of Arch Enemy's more brutal songs, but then it has this like four-minute divergence into these brilliant, um, like harmonized lead guitar passages, like incredibly melodic, and actually really great to get recorded on on this Black Earth album because the version of it on uh, Burning Japan Live, for some reason they decided that maybe time limits on the set or whatever, they cut it at four minutes and didn't have any of the beautiful harmonies at the end, which. Felt like an incredible oversight. 
Um, and then what's really cool, because they've got so many bits of, you know, interlude music left over, as the band are wrapping up and doing their, their fun, like, walk back on stage, get a picture with the crowd, they play Vox Solarum, a kind of... Um, piano interlude with a lead guitar over it from the Stigmata album and then the track Hydra which again is another I think it's I think it's the same Japanese bonus track uh from um uh from that Burning Japan Burning Bridges album so yeah another song just for the for the Japanese crowds of the Western audience probably wouldn't be quite so familiar with because wasn't released here until uh, until it was packaged with a special edition of uh, Wages of Sin. But overall, it's just an absolutely fantastic product. And it, it's such a shame because I, I had to organize, like, order this in from Japan. Like, uh, it doesn't seem to have a Western release at all. Um, and it's amazing, you know. It's a you know three-disc DVD, two-live album, really nice booklet. The cover's even really cool. Black Earth have their own, like far more death metal logo kind of looks like wouldn't be out of place with like the old carnage stuff or something like that the front cover is the that logo a massive font over five pictures of undead versions of black earth um the the lot the, the the kind of five-man lineup of the band and, and you know doing the classic death metal sort of pun of oh look they're back from the dead but you know looks really looks really cool it's, it's just an amazing re-release package and for someone like me who kind of felt this era of the band was completely dead it was so exciting back in like 2017 2018 when i heard about this to be like oh there is something resurrecting this era of, of a band i really liked and have completely gone off in recent years and it, it, it's testament actually to that that thing i was saying earlier of of the re-recording versus live album so for as a you know pretty diehard fan of that early like arch enemy sound um i felt the re-recording album they did i forget the name of it um where it's essentially like angela doing all the johan lever era stuff or like 12 or so like classic songs was just kind of a bit offensive and also bland it was just, i bought it at the time and just immediately regretted it it did absolutely nothing for me but this has me uh, like with like childlike excitement for for stuff that i was really into when i was 15 it's like totally recaptures that magic and it's more or less the same thing but for some reason one was slightly kind of misjudged in my book and the other is is like the greatest gift the band could give me it's and it's, it's amazing that difference of like do it live super respectful fucking awesome re-record the stuff it feels like you're trying to replace the original uh, it's a strange thing that but anyway if you if you're a fan of arch enemy this, i'd say this is an essential purchase like even if you're mostly a fan of their latest stuff like go back and check out those early albums and if you're someone who somehow has sat through this whole review and has never been into the band go back and check out black earth and stigmata in particular they are like truly brilliant mellow death releases and, and a lot heavier than much of the latest stuff would come across uh burning bridge of less so like the immortals incredible but most of the rest of the album's a bit a bit cheesy and a bit more uh kind of indicative of where their career was was certainly going to go in future years but yeah, 20 years of Dark Insanity, incredible gift. So if this is all I managed to get from them, if I never get to see this lineup doing it live, at least I've got this. At least I can watch this DVD over and over again and, and get that. 
Oh, and the thing I totally forgot to mention, the really awesome thing they did for this is they recorded a new song. The open to the album is a new studio track called Darkness Has Returned. And, you know, it's very much in the vein of their old stuff. It starts out, like, pretty heavy and then has this massively cheesy kind of instrumental lead section in the middle. But, yeah, just... It sounds really great. This sounds like an actual quite good follow-up to those first three albums and genuinely I'd love to hear more like this um it's it's the most I've enjoyed an Arch Enemy song in the last 10 like like they've released in the last 10 years easily so yeah like um look if if you can't you don't want to go through the kind of process of picking this up from Japan at least look that up somewhere I'm sure it'd be I'm sure it'd be on Spotify or something like that um yeah that Darkness of Return really cool to have that that sort of like open to this of like Hey, I don't recognize this track. Yeah, amazing stuff. an album that i first heard recommended by uh zachary from imperial triumphant and <laughs> kind of be left field uh, suggestion after that this is metallica live at lyceum theater in london 1984 so i wasn't aware of this live release i think it is really famous but i just somehow missed it and uh, zachary uh was at, at the the gig we saw at bristol uh a while ago speaking to my girlfriend and sort of interrupted halfway through to because a track of this was playing and just stopped and said this is the last time metallica were a truly brilliant live band um 
don't know how much truth there there is to that. I mean, obviously, people still really enjoy it. Metallica's live sets, but there is something about this 1984 set which is is very different from the Metallica we we sort of know today. It's um, there's 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 a kind of intense energy to this i you'd not see in the band anymore they're far more kind of i guess like sort of tight and professional than than this but it's somewhat have lost a lot in that i think there's um so 1984 you could probably know this means just after ride the lightning has come out but pre-master of puppets so the set is entirely tracks from those first two albums, I think almost like an equal split from both. Apparently as well, like a fair amount of the start and end of the set is cut, but we still get a really solid hour of material, which goes through some really interesting stuff. Like this, It wouldn't be my exact prediction of what they would play. Like, for example, the third song into it is Anesthesia Pulling Teeth. It's Cliff Burton's, um, you know, bass solo played live with all kind of Cliff Burton's kind of wonderful additions to it as a sort of actually the thing we're talking about of musicians change, changing stuff up a bit like Cliff Burton really kind of plays with his sound on this album quite a lot like the guy clearly has a hell of a lot of pedals going on he goes through so many interesting bass tones and obviously I'm going to lean into talking about Cliff on this because sadly there's not that many uh, live recordings with him on and and what's really great about this one is the bass is really loud. And you can see what he added to the band at this point in time. I think um, my big running criticism with uh, Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets is the bass is way too quiet on both albums. Like You can tell he's doing interesting stuff, but he's often kind of buried in the mix other than, you know, obviously the For Whom the Bell Tolls kind of kind of intro. Um they like yeah and it, as I say he keeps throwing in loads of interesting effects which um I don't know for me it just felt like his bass playing always feels quite unique for a fresh metal bass player there're not many that go down that route of many are super technical but they're rarely this kind of um sort of bluesy and jammy they they, they feels like a lot of like um improvisation thrown in on this lots of like with his solo he sort of does something kind of interesting with the second half of it. It's quite different to the studio version, and it l blends perfectly then into a bass intro for For Whom the Bell Tolls, you know, probably his one of his most famous bits of bass playing he ever recorded. The, the set that's there, like, as you can see, kind of goes back and forth between the heavier Metallica stuff and the, um, uh, like, the more kind of... Uh, it, like epic stuff so in the middle of the set we get call of fulu but then that is directly followed by seek and destroy and whiplash so there's um there's like a lot of variation back and forth james hetfield's vocal performance is that thing these are the days before he could really sing where he was just doing that sort of really aggressive snarl and and it works so well like i just love how much kind of how much of a vicious edge they have in this like metallica now are a very polished band but they're a touch toothless and at this point in time this is just this feels so kind of raw and aggressive it, and, and the thing is there is no like overdubs or re-recordings on this i'm certain this is the sound they got out of the room because there are so many little fuck-ups and and like random squeals of distortion or bits where the bass kind of 
completely goes off in its own direction outside of what the rest of the band are doing. Um, James's sort of dialogue on stage is, is both like at times hilarious and at times really cool. Uh, I don't love, love a moment where he sort of tells the audience to throw their hands up in the air and then like really chastises the the top row for not doing it and calls them lazy. But um, there's another bit where he refers to Fulu as a sick freak, which comes across as very strange. Um, the the something that's kind of really funny about this, and I don't I don't know the history to it. There's probably a um, a really kind of um, interesting reason for this. But Kirk has a solo in the middle of it between the the you know second to last and last track of the album, and it's just the whole middle of it's gone. Like, the solo is about 30 seconds long. And considering the bass got a whole three-minute-long solo earlier, I can imagine there was a lot more to it. But for whatever reason, the thing is, like, completely disappeared. And I don't know... I don't know why the, the kind of... the other tracks aren't present either, but... Um... Like, yeah, maybe maybe just lost to time. Who knows? Like, the way to get this now, I believe it's all up on Spotify, but, um... There's the there's the kind of um, Ride the Lightning Deluxe Remaster box has this and about four other live sets in it. Some huge like fifty track long thing, and it's really cool. It's just such a different way of hearing the band. It sounds nothing like the the sort of studio version of these songs. Everything is faster and more aggressive and more over the top. And like even something like Call of Hulu is is like. There's something weirder about it. Uh, yeah, I, I really, really rated this as a live release, and I, I'm kind of, kind of with Zachary on this. Like this, this is one of the kind of most interesting sounding things I've I've heard from Metallica in a long time. You know, I'm one of those the sort of boring people who doesn't really care about anything they've done post the Black Album. Like that was. Yeah, I love that at the time. Like, I love that when I got a hold of it, but everything after that hasn't sort of excited me in the same way. And it's funny going back to this having missed it. I don't. I, I mean, I think I am a total idiot for having missed it. I think this is something everyone else knows about. But like having missed this, it was just really funny to have that moment of going, "Oh shit, yeah, Metallica were really cool at one point in time," and I'm probably overly harshly like sort of writing them off but yeah this, this is just so exciting and it not just for sort of cliff burton's incredible playing like the whole band sound really intensely even like lars is is far from tight but he still seems to have the whole like the, the same energy the rest of the band have and yeah it, it, it's it's brilliant now based on uh recent events at blizzcon i'm not going to try and play a song after it because i don't want a bit of like we background music to replace it later or just Metallica's lawyers to get in touch so you're just gonna have to imagine this one or go look it up yourself I'm afraid so I'm gonna hand you off now to our final guest review and this will be the last one for the show um so uh you may have noticed uh, if you've been listening for a long time that my my regular co-host Rob um really really likes Devin Townsend and I don't often let him talk about Devin Townsend that much not for any real hatred or dislike of Devin Townsend myself. I, I quite enjoy some of his music, but I, I don't have the same kind of fervour for him uh, as Rob does. So Rob has very much shirked the roughly five-minute rule for this review. But in fairness, it's one of the few times he gets to talk about Devin Townsend. So 
yeah, I'll I'll um I'll kind of sign off here and pass you pass you over to Rob. So if you want to get in touch, um you can hit me up on email at philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, or we're on Facebook at Phil's Breakfast Metal. I'm on Instagram as well now. I uh, can't remember what the at is for that, but yeah, if you Google Phil's Breakfast Metal, I think I think all of those should come up. So please get in touch and let us know your your favourite live albums. Um We've had a load of suggestions in after I called for it, actually, of, of ideas for episodes going forward. So, again, keep hitting me up with those because I, I, I think they're really fun. Like, I might, I almost certainly won't get to every single suggestion, but I'll try my best to um, to at least cater to, to your requests. So, if you've got an album you want me to talk about, let me know. And, um, yeah, and as always, hit me up with your own bands again. I might not be able to get back to, to every one of them. Like, the email account is a bit overloaded by just random promo guff at the moment but uh i'll try and respond to all of you anyway uh going on way too much there i'll pass you over to rob thanks a lot for listening hello my name is rob and you have probably heard me on phil's breakfast metal at some point before today i'm going to be talking about probably one of the best gigs that i've ever been to and probably my favorite live album of all time which if you know anything about my music taste is very predictable um, this is De- the Devon Townsend Project live at the Royal Albert Hall. So this was released on the 13th of November 2015 and is a record of the gig which took place at the Royal Albert Hall um, in April 2015. So this is split up into two halves. The first half of the album is the full Dark Matters Ziltoid 2 um, from the album which came out in, I think, 2014. And the second half is a completely different set of by-request songs which stretch throughout Devon Townsend's recording period, and this was done by a Facebook vote. So to start off, I'll start off with Ziltoid 2, because it's definitely the weirdest part of the album. Um, There have been a lot of bands who have played at the Royal Albert Hall, but there has never been anything this silly or weird and actually being really quite heavy at the same time. So, you know, as Devon described it in the actual show... There has never been a show at the Royal Albert Hall where a little farting ball bag has run around stage while people are hammering on extremely distorted guitars and singing about aliens in outer space. So it is completely bonkers, and I love the ambition of taking something as silly as Ziltoid 2 and putting that on as a stage show. So the way that the whole thing is set up is we have Devin, Dave, Beave, um, RVP and Mike St. John who are on stage, Um, They've got the sort of things where you can climb up the ladders towards the back, but the stage is also made of a whole bunch of screens which sort of interlock with each other to make a larger picture. And it's through this that there's a whole bunch of sort of imagery shown throughout the entire gig. So you have a lot of stuff that comes from music videos, particularly for the Ziltoid stuff, but you also have things like the narrator from the Ziltoid part. He will appear on the screen as sort of a disembodied mouth and eyes and will talk to the audience as if you're going through that Ziltoid story. But alongside that, you also have a choir who are sort of back at the sides and they, you know, they have costume changes that go on throughout which match the parts that they're in. So in the Ziltoid part, they're actually dressed in these little like Ziltoid style outlets. They've got the little collar that he has and um, outfits. And then you also have right at the top this massive throne where you eventually get Queen Blataria coming in halfway through March of the Poozers. So it's a really cool setup. Um, and it helps not to only highlight the musicians because you can put them on the bigger screens for people who are at the back. But it also means that you get to do a whole lot of imagery stuff. And we'll see this in the second half as well. So the thing that makes this, I think, 
really, really fun is that it takes you on this ridiculous, like, story. And it does it not only through the music and the narrative and all that, but it it tells the story through the costume changes and through the visuals that are happening behind. So when we get to halfway through March of the Poozers, um, Dominique Lenore Percy, who is plays Queen Blataria, is sitting on the throne, sort of in darkness throughout the whole thing, but you can just about see her. And then at the end, when her part comes in, there's this, you know, all the lights come on and it focuses on her, and her vocal performance is fantastic, particularly, like, playing off against Devins with the choir in the background and people like Beeve doing backup vocals as well. You have so much going on, and they do an amazing job of not just playing the album, but playing it as if it is a full stage show rock opera, which for something that's this stupid is incredible. Like, it it just really hits you with it. And I think the album is enjoyed best in this way because it feels like this big, stupid sci-fi spectacle. Um, and it has all of the trimmings with it. Um, the audience is fantastic in this section as well because you see so many ziltoid puppets sort of hovering in the air um, and when Devin's sort of talking out between the songs you can just see this people are 100% brought into the silliness of this and in such a sort of prestigious stadium prestigious area it's so much fun to see that people are having fun with music and not treating this as something that has to be really really serious on from that, the sound balance is just incredible. There are so many parts to this. You know, you've got all of the basic stuff within the band. You've then got choirs. You've got two incredible vocalists in Devin and Dominique. Um, you've got the backup vocals. You've got all the synths. You've got um, all the orchestral bits. You've got the narrator. You have so many moving parts, and they manage to balance it perfectly. Um, looking at it from one perspective, just the drums are so, so clear. I don't think I've watched any live shows and watched live DVDs in which you can hear every single hit on the drums. And, you know, you look at some of Devin's later recordings, like Transcendence and stuff like that, where the drums are tuned to each song. And it sounds like that, you know, every single hit is perfectly clear throughout the entire thing. And yet they can still get these huge moments, like on the song Earth in the first half, when you get this section with the choir singing Coming to Earth, and then the build-up into this really fast double bass kick groove. Uh, like, you still get a huge amount of power out of this, or on songs like Death Ray. Huge amounts of power. I, You know, you could listen to this, and if you couldn't hear any of the crowd interaction, this sounds pretty much as good as the album. Um, even with all of the narrator sections and things like that. So it's an absolutely incredibly well done. Um, and it really breathes new life into these songs, which, you know, I, I really like Dark Matters, the Z2. I think it's cool, but it's so much cooler hearing it as this live experience. So, yeah, the first half is one that I come back to much less. But every time I do come back to it, I'm pleasantly surprised by just how much fun it is. Like, there's, it's not, it's not serious, although, again, the musicians play it perfectly and it's not an easy album by any means. But, it, yeah, it's just having loads of fun with it. Moving on to the second half of the album is the bit that I think is just absolutely incredible. The set list is phenomenal. So as I said earlier, it was chosen by a Facebook vote which Devin put out. So it's a by-request set that comes sort of across his whole career. You've got things like Namaste. You've got a whole bunch of stuff from Ocean Machine. You've got Earth Day from Terrier. You've got Deadhead from Accelerated Evolution. And then you've got a bit of the later stuff um, with Universal Flame. Uh, and what is it? 
Um, the song about animals from Epicloud, I'm completely blanking on its name at the moment. But you have a huge range of stuff from throughout his career, which is really, really nice. And Devin's done this more since then. He has the live DVD in Plodiv where he's playing the whole of Ocean Machine. But it's really nice to see this much, much broader um, sort of assessment of his career, particularly because I like a lot of those early albums. Terrier, Ocean Machine, Accelerated Evolution are some of my favourites of his. So it's great to see that. And then also seeing how he builds some of these new things in. So Earth Day has quite a lot of sort of choral moments. And having a choir there who have now changed into new outfits to match the sort of theme of Earth Day, really adds to that a whole lot. It adds so much dynamically to the song. Their interplay with Devin's vocals is just phenomenal. So it's incredible to see that. And also, you know, seeing the band who are very much, you know, they're in the just before Transcendence releases phase, going back and playing all these songs, you know, like songs off of Ocean Machine where, and I love Ocean Machine to this day, but it doesn't have the same production as transcendence does like not by a long way same thing with songs like namaste like going back and listening to the originals it's just not quite there certainly with namaste i really like how ocean machines produced but that's a separate topic um and hearing that done with the modern band with all of their experience with this incredible production it's just really cool i prefer the version of namaste and heatwave for example from this than i do the actual recorded versions So, uh, for me, the actual biggest moment on this is the Ocean Machine trilogy. So, we do get Night earlier on, which is an incredibly catchy track. I love it. But we then get the Ocean Machine trilogy, A Funeral Bastard, and The Death of Music. And I think this is the first time The Death of Music was ever played. These three songs are absolutely the highlight of this gig. And if I ever wanted to show anyone, you know, like, a bit of live music that I think is just incredible, it would be these three songs. So Funeral's like a really open, big song. And it's it's sad, but overall it is, is hopeful. Like it's not a song that wallows in despair. It's, it's about death and dying and coming to terms with that, the people you know. But it's overall, it's commenting on that. It's saying, you know, these are things that have happened and I don't feel great about it. But I went to the funeral in the rain. It is okay. Which can't be said about Bastard. Um, Bastard is really, really sad. It has an incredible riff in it. And again, the production is just spot on. The riff is covered in reverb and echo. And it feels like, when you listen to it on this album, that, you know, Devin is playing the riff and it is just echoing throughout the hall. It feels so natural. And this song is really sad. Like, it's just kind of overwhelming. Um, Incredible song. Really simple in its structure, but it comes off so well in a live setting. Moving on to, I think, the best moment is the death of music. So it's super exciting just before this. So at the end of Bastard, Devin puts his guitar away, which is something he never does. When he plays live, he's always singing and playing guitar. But he puts his guitar away. You know, he's just there in his classic, like, grey hoodie, just standing before the microphone. And, you know, we're all like, what's he going to do? What, what, what songs are you going to play? You know, he's always playing guitar. Not since his days with Steve Vai has he been just a vocalist. And then you get the death of music. And you know it's a death of music because it's got this really simple drum pattern that repeats throughout the whole thing, just on the toms and the hi-hat. Um, and you have to give credit to RVP for this one because 
It takes a lot of patience for 10 minutes to play exactly the same drum pattern. Uh, you raise the intensity, you know, he moves it round the toms. He takes it from your lower floor toms to the higher rack toms as it gets more intense. And he, you know, hits harder or less hard and varies the intensity as the song moves on. But to play exactly the same pattern for an entire song, you know, when in a lot of the quiet places, the drums are the main thing people are hearing outside of the samples and the uh, noise in the background. It takes a lot. But the true thing that makes this so special is Devin's incredible vocal performance. So again, like he hasn't, he hasn't got his guitar and everyone's sort of, what, what is he going to play? And you realise it's the death of music and it was just an incredible reaction. Um, the vocal passages in this are incredible. Like I don't think Devin has written... He's written a hell of a lot of impressive vocal parts, but I don't think he's written anything quite like this since. Um, it's such a simplistic song, but its vocal hooks are so big. They're so powerful. And you get to hear Devin do the incredible thing he does where he can switch between these operatic cleans into something harsh, but hold that tone and just like effortlessly move between the two of them. It is a breathtakingly beautiful performance of this song. I would say it's the definitive performance of this song. The album version, again, is incredible. But there's something about seeing him sing this. And, you know, he he doesn't look like a rock star. Devin doesn't look like someone who'd have this incredible voice and these incredible screams. But seeing him there, you know, just in a grey hoodie, just standing there, just like belting out these incredible sections... There's something so, so powerful about it. And, you know, like the lyrics in this song, again, really emotional. Things like, don't die on me, don't go away when I need you here. And the way he puts so much power into that, it's one of, it's probably the best thing I've ever seen live. And it does make me tear up watching it. It's just so incredible. One of the greatest vocal performances of all time, I think, without a doubt. But aside from that, aside from those, you know, huge emotional moments, like, it gets quite fun and silly this second half. It feels so relaxed. It feels like, you know, Devin, someone who has struggled a lot with his work over the years and, you know, not knowing how he feels about all of it, he comes across as so relaxed and and fun in this. Songs like Heatwave, which is Devin Townsend's version of a country song, uh, where they get out all these little hats and pass them round and they get Beave to play the banjo. You know, it's just... It's really good fun. You have a huge sort of dichotomy of like catchy songs, heavy songs, fun songs, really sad songs. And then when you get to the end, they end on Universal Flame, uh, which is a song from one of the later Devon albums, I think Sky Blue. And uh, so this this song is probably one of the best ones on Sky Blue, but it's never been one of my absolute favourites. But it works so well as a closer for this. You know, for me, Earth Day and the Funeral Bastard Death of Music trilogy, like, those are the best bits. Those are my favourite songs. It's incredible to see them played. But there's no song that could have fitted better as a closer than Universal Flame. It's so upbeat. It's so wholesome. It's so optimistic. And then add into that that they got all the VIPs in stage. And Devon invited his son onto stage to choose the song. It was just such an amazing, wholesome moment that brought the crowd together in such an incredible way. You know, we're all there, everyone's on stage dancing and they're playing Universal Flame. And it's, yeah, it's such an incredibly epic and wholesome closer to the album. Um, And as well on the second half, something I forgot to mention is they continue to use the backdrop. So the backdrop will be used like it is at a lot of gigs to zoom in on the musicians so people further back can see what's going on. But they also use it... um, 
to add imagery to songs. So on Earth Day, you've got like sort of naturalistic imagery going on in the background. But on things like Universal Flame, you've got animations from Sky Blue and things which match the tone and the ideas of that song. So it's a really well put together sort of set. All of that stuff works well. The set list is just absolutely incredible. Um, It has some incredible standout moments. I think like the death of music um, or Earth Day, you know, the death of music thing, it's... It's just one of the best vocal performances ever. So it has these beautiful standout moments and the musicianship and production is just out of this world. There are so few, you know, live albums that I can think of that even come close to how perfectly this is played. Managing to get exact precision where you can hear every stroke and every note while at the same time creating these huge walls of sound with so many elements going on with choirs and with samples and with narration and with so many different vocalists at the same time, you know, getting that wall of sound that Devin does, but somehow managing to pick out every individual thing as well. So I think this is an absolutely phenomenal album. It's one I come back to all the time, particularly the second half, but definitely like the first half is a fantastically fun ride to watch as well. Um, as I said, it probably won't surprise anyone that I love this album so much, but I would definitely recommend checking it out. Even if you only like certain sections of Devin's work and think that, you know, quite like, you know, that won't be represented on this. These are the best examples of all of these songs. You know, this is the best they've ever been played and recorded. So definitely worth checking out. 